Let's ready. Let's get started. It's 12:30 on the dot. Um, if this is your first time, as always, we're glad you're here. The food is provided free by Ruth's, and uh, we've been doing this for years and years now. And this is a Bible study open to anybody that lives or works or can get to this area. Every Tuesday, it's free, and we do ask that you leave a tip. Yes, you can make change if you need to, and uh, we won't think you're pilfering, but um, we uh, leave a tip that goes straight to the people in the back. They get all of that, and uh, I don't see any of it. However, the ministry that helps this happen, including recording it each week, audio and video, archiving it and uploading it to create a database online, um, that does cost money, and that is supported by donors. And so if you would like to be a part of what we're doing, we are, we are definitely in need of more monthly supporters. And uh, it's on the website, discipledojo.org, and you can become a white belt level donor, which is $10 a month. That's like a trip to Starbucks or two, uh, all the way up to a black belt donor, which is $100 a month. And um, anything, or just one-time gifts. But it, it's entirely donor-funded, and we just... Just trust myself and the board that God will provide. And if people enjoy this ministry, either listening at home or watching at home, then they'll show it tangibly with their money. Uh, at the end of the day, that's what we need. And uh, so consider doing that if you haven't. Yes. Can you repeat the uh, website? Yes, it's discipledojo.org. Yep, you just search Disciple Dojo. Make sure you spell disciple right. And uh, D-O-J-O, dojo, like where you train. So um, that's the, I, you'd be surprised, even pastors misspelled disciple. So check it out, uh, hop on there, look and see what we're doing. We don't just do this Bible study, we have a number of teaching curriculums that your church can do. Some of you don't know this, but we have entire courses that, that I've put together that small groups in churches can do, and it's 100% free. I've got a church down in Georgia right now, and they're doing one of our courses, and each week the leader brings a laptop, opens up the website, presses play on the video, shows the video, and then they talk about it afterwards, and then they go home. So it's, it's super convenient, and it's entirely free, again. And for any church anywhere in the world with internet access um, can do these studies. So tell your church friends, tell your pastors, tell ministry people, um, follow us on Facebook, you know, Twitter, any of that stuff. Just uh, whatever you can do that really, really helps small, nonprofit, underfunded ministries. So there's the shameless plug for today. Um, you guys bear with me. I've been under the weather all weekend and I'm just kind of drained today and I have to go teach my refugee kids tonight and then drive straight to Boone and three days of teaching at Samaritan's Purse for eight hours a day. Uh, so I'm already tired and it hasn't even started yet. So I, I appreciate your prayers um, and bear with me today if it's not as, as fast paced, if I'm not as hilarious and charming as you're used to. <laughs> We're in Joshua, or excuse me, it's already, you can tell. We're in Judges chapter 6. Joshua 6 was earlier this year. That is in the Old Testament, yes. Judges chapter 6. And we read about the judges of Israel. Judy, Wapner, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, the judges of Israel, what we've seen is that judge doesn't mean somebody with a robe and a gavel. In fact, Deborah's the only judge that actually does any judging between people. Uh, of all the judges. And she's not even specifically called a judge. So that's, it's just a term, and it means, the best way to think of it is um, heroic deliverer. 
That's the best title, heroic deliverer, because that's what the judges do in Israel. They're raised up in this. While Israel's on this downward spiral, Israel has everything's downhill, and it's slowly getting worse and worse and worse. And along the way, though, God's sending these judges almost as like stop brakes in the to kind of put the brakes on the the downward spiral to get the people to turn. That's always his goal is to get them to turn. So we saw last week after 20 years of oppression. And, and just complete oppression by these, these Canaanite powerhouses that should have been defeated already. Uh, God delivered Israel through very unlikely means, two women and a Gentile. And then there was peace for 40 years, which is amazing. It's like the only happy ending pretty much in Judges. And so for, there was a, this long period of peace. And... But in that time, all was not well. 40 years, all right? So think back. What was 40 years ago? The 80s? Is that right? The 80s were 40 years ago, right? I'm not, I don't do math. You guys have to help me out. You, some of you are business people, so if you can't answer that question, we're all in trouble. Um, but whatever 40 years ago was, I'm 41. I was born in 78. Late 70s, 79, right? Somebody just should have said, no, it's the 70s, dummy. Um, the late 70s. So think back to the late 70s, okay? Now, that span of time, Israel has, the land has been at peace. There hasn't been war. But but rather than turning to God, rather than recognizing that that's because of the deliverance that God gave through Deborah, Jael, and Barak, and the covenant faithfulness of Israel, Israel did what people do when there's 40 years of things going well. They slid back into idolatry. So by the time uh, 40 years passes, we get to chapter 6, and it says again, here's that refrain that's going to be very familiar. It's already become familiar to you in Judges. Again, the Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. These are their distant relatives descended through one of Abraham's, uh, through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. They were down in what is today northwest Saudi Arabia down in Midian, kind of where Mount Sinai is. Those of you here for Exodus, we talked about that. And it's where Moses went when he fled Egypt. He stayed in Midian. His father-in-law was a Midianite high priest. So Israel and Midian have not always been at war. But by this time, in you know, this is a couple hundred years, uh, the Midianites have come in and have they basically come up from the south and into Israel from the east. And the Midianites uh, have teamed up with some others as we're going to see the Malachites and some other Eastern peoples. And these are kind of like nomad warrior raiding parties. So they're not coming to live in the land and take the land. What they're coming to do is pillage the land because of, most likely because their land isn't sustaining enough for them. So he sold them into the hands of the Midianites because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds or rocky outcrops. The, the, the image is they have to flee up, it, head for the hills is the image. Right. Why do they do that? Because you can't live in unfortified cities out in a village in a plain or something. You'll get attacked. So you have to flee up into the hills where the enemy doesn't want to chase you up in there. And it's kind of like what, you know, like the war in Afghanistan, the Taliban, they're really smart. They do that. They flee to the hills. And of course, giant armies don't want to Go up and so what do you have to do? Special forces have to go in, route them out, and that's when so many casualties happen because it's easier to hide in the hills and defend yourself than it is to attack people and root them out of it. So that's what Israel has been reduced to for seven years. And it says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. 
They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. That's all the way to the shore. So the entire southern part of Israel. They came up with their lives. Uh, they camped on the land, ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like a swarm of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So it compares them to a swarm of locusts. And the prophets will do this later when an invading army comes through. We don't really have, I mean, I grew up in South Georgia and we had locusts like cicadas and they stick on the pine trees and pop out of their shell and they leave the shell. And sometimes when it's a thick season, you know, there'd be like five or ten on one pine tree. That's about it in my experience with locusts. But in the ancient Near East, locusts were the most terrifying, one of the most terrifying things that could happen. The reason, not because they attack people, but because a locust will eat its own body weight every day in food. And the, there, were, there have been locusts, I think as far back as 1957, in that area, there was a locust swarm that was, I want to say, 16 trillion estimated locusts. Uh, it's just miles and miles. They said the, the weight would have been like 50,000 tons worth of locusts. I mean, just beyond number, literally, uncountable. And every one of those eating its own weight in anything that it can eat vegetation-wise. And then when they pass by, the land is stripped bare. So not only do you not have your crops, your cow don't have anything to eat, the sheep don't have anything to eat, everything dies. And there's nothing you can do to stop a locust plague. What are you going to do? Swat them away? Good luck. It's like swatting the ocean. So it's a terrifying image. And it happens in the Bible. It's just one that we're not that familiar with because we don't have locust plagues anymore. But it's one of the most terrifying things that can, uh, an ancient people can imagine is a locust plague. And that's what it compares these Midianites, Amalekites, and Eastern peoples to. They came in and just like a locust plague, they swarmed in, their camels were without number, and these were camels that could travel fast in the desert. Camels were used for transportation and fighting because they could actually run on sand. You know, horses and stuff, their hooves kind of sink in to the sand so they're not that fast, but camels have the big padded feet so they can actually run on the sand. And so these camels and these raiding parties would come in and just wipe the land out for seven years. So one year is bad, two years really bad, seven years is completely bad. You know, seven's a biblical number of completeness. But even just physically, anything of famine lasting seven years, that's, that's almost a decade. Of, of not having anything and having to eke out a living in the rocks. So the Israelites cried out. So when it says the Israelites cried out, it's not like a one-time thing. It's not like, oh, something bad happened. God save us. And then God comes down. And, no, there was seven years of this. So for sure the people were crying out for seven years. And then finally, after a certain point, we don't know why God waited seven years, but he did. Last time he waited 20 years. So God's timing is always bigger than our timetables. Uh, they cry out to God. So verse 7, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, first thing he does, he sent them a prophet. And, and the text says a man, a prophet. Just like it said last two chapters ago when it sent Deborah, a woman, a prophetess. So it's the same kind of thing. He's gonna, now it's time to raise up somebody new. But first, he's got a message for Israel. So he, he sent a prophet to him, an unnamed prophet. We don't know who this is who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you the land. So he just recapped the whole book of Joshua. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. 
He's reminding them. They broke the covenant. A broken covenant, there's no restitution. There's no, you should not have any reason to believe that a broken covenant will be restored. That's just a fact. In the ancient world, you break a covenant, it's done. It's shattered. The tablets are broken. The covenant's broken. The relationship is severed. It's over. So anytime God saves or delivers or moves among His people after they've broken the covenant is always an act of grace. Grace is always in the Old Testament because there should be no uh, repairing of a covenant that's been broken. But God gives them this, hey, listen, don't, don't even get it twisted while you're in this situation. This is why this has happened to you. And so he speaks that to Israel. Verse 11. Now this, is a diff- this could be the same messenger in the previous, the prophet, but it's more likely that this is a different event, a second event. So first he sent a prophet to the people of Israel to tell them just kind of in a general way. Now he specifically is going to appear, and it's this character we've met before, the angel of Yahweh, the Malach Yahweh, angel of the Lord. And we've talked about how this is not an angel that's like God's special angel. This is God himself. One of the commentators put it, God's alter ego. This is God in angel form. This is the angel that is the Lord. That's what angel of the Lord means. Just like the land of Egypt is the land that is Egypt. So the angel of the Lord, or the angel who is the Lord, came and sat down under an oak in Orpah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now that already gives you a lot of information, but one of the main things, again, we're not as familiar, is Gideon was, first of all, he was threshing wheat. We've talked about this a little bit before, but if you haven't been here, what is threshing wheat? Well, when there's a harvest, you cut the sheaves, you bind them together, bind the sheaves. You do what the old song says, bringing in the sheaves. That means you bring the sheaves to the threshing floor. You throw all the sheaves of wheat into the threshing floor, and there's a pole, and there's an animal on the pole, and the animal walks around in a circle and crunches, 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 and that separates the chaff from the grain. You take the animal out, then you take a pitchfork, a winnowing fork, and you start throwing it up in the air, and the wind blows the chaff away, and the heavy grain falls to the ground. And after hours of doing this, you have mostly kernels of usable wheat when the chaff's been blown away. Now you do this out in the open. You do this on a threshing floor, which is exposed to the elements. Why? Because you need the wind to blow the stuff away. So you can't do that. Well, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. What does that mean? Well, wine presses were, if I had a picture I could show you, because I saw one the last time I was there, but wine presses were usually two big pits carved into rock somewhere. And the first pit was raised, and it had a little spout, and then the second pit was lowered. And you'd throw the grapes in the top pit, and then you'd smash them somehow, either with feet or with implements or something smashed, so that the juice would run out into the bottom vat. And then that would drain into your jugs or whatever, and that's what you would take to put in skins and be fermented. But wine presses were not out in the open, because they had to be dug into rock. And so they were usually up against a wall, or in a cleft, or under a tree, or somewhere where it's rocky and you can kind of carve it out. So Gideon is threshing wheat, in a wine press. That's a terrible way to thresh wheat. But he's having to do it because they can't risk taking the wheat out into the open because it'll get taken by the raiders. So, so he, in other words, he's resorted to hiding and doing this chore. And it, and it was, some, some interpreters have said, and it's also t- typically was what women did. The men would d- do other things. The women would be the ones who would thresh and, and do the wheat. And I don't know how true that is or not. I mean, I, it probably is in some parts, but so some have said, so Gideon, there's another layer. He's, he's doing characteristically what would be woman's work 
Um, maybe, maybe not, but the point is he's, he's having to hide and cower in order to make this sustenance of wheat in a wine press. And you can't make a lot of wheat in a wine press because they aren't that big. So that's what the, where he is when the Lord appears to him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So that's the first little note of irony in this story. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Mighty warriors don't thresh wheat in wine presses. They don't hide in the clefts and eke out a subsistence existence. And so this is saying, this angel is, some have said he's seeing what Gideon's going to become. He sees something. This is where a, a preacher would go on about God sees the potential in you. You're a mighty warrior, even if you feel like you're threshing wheat in a wine. Maybe. Or, for those of you that read the Gideon story and you see the path his life takes, what's more likely is God recognizes what God is going to do through Gideon that he is going to make him into a mighty warrior. And it has nothing to do with Gideon's ability whatsoever. No hidden talent that just needs to be coaxed out. This is going to be from start to finish a miracle of God. And we're going to see Gideon's character actually very seldom matches that of a mighty warrior. But in God's hands, even a crooked stick can make a straight line. And so he says, God, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon replies, uh, pardon me, my Lord. NIV says, but sir, but that's a lot more polite. Gideon's is really like, pardon me, or hold up. Um, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did the Lord not bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the palm of Midian. NIV says hand, but it's the Hebrew word kaf, palm. Given us into Midian's palm. So Gideon's answer to this, hey, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon's answer is like, yeah, right. Where, if, if God's with me, why am I doing this? Everything about what you just said makes no sense in light of this situation. So Gideon's kind of voicing that frustration of the people who have lived for seven years of, of, of torment by these raiding marauders. The Lord said to him, <laughs> he doesn't give him a good answer. Why has this happened? Why? Why are we suffering? Where is God? You know, all the things we always ask. The Lord said to him, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? So God's answer is not an answer, but it's a command. Go do it. It's like when Moses, Moses said, how will I know that you're sending me? And God answered back in Exodus, you'll know when you come back here and worship on this mountain. And that was God's way of verifying his word was saying to Moses, you'll know it when you've done it. So go do it. That's your proof. That's all I'm giving you. And he does this again with Gideon. Go in the strength you have. I'm the one sending you. So he kind of, God completely sidesteps. And God does this a lot. God very rarely answers people's why, how long, what's the purpose in this, why. Very rarely. Now he just did in the earlier chapter. He said this is at a macro level why Israel is suffering. Because you've abandoned me. So that's clear. But on the personal level, we all still want to know, but why am I going through this? Why am I doing, you know. We're going to find out in a minute what Gideon's family's like. And so, uh, the Lord turned to him, go in the strength you have, save Israel out of Midian's hands. I'm not sending you. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan, and that's the word Eleph, the word for thousand. That's how we know the word thousand doesn't always mean thousand. Sometimes it means clan. Um, so my Eleph, my regiment, my clan, is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. So of all the people that should be rescuing, saving Israel, I'm the worst candidate. And we see God makes a pattern of picking those to do what He wants all through Scripture. But the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites 
The NIV says together, but that's a weak translation. He says literally, you will strike down all the Midianites like one man. Is what it actually says in Hebrew. You will strike down all of these raiding numerous, innumerable camel raiders that have been plundering you for seven years. You're going to strike them as if they're one man. It's a very bold promise. It's a ridiculous promise, honestly. It's an absolutely ridiculous promise in the eyes of Gideon and the rest of the Israelites. So, Gideon replied, verse 17, If I've now found favor in your eyes, in other words, that's a way of saying in Hebrew, bear with me, um, give me a sign that it really is you talking to me. Please, don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. So this is kind of Gideon's Okay, I'm willing to listen, but I need to know that I'm, one, not imagining this, and two, that this is legit. So let me go make a, a meal and bring it back, and then I'll know that this is real if you're still here. If I come back and you're gone, then I can just chalk this up to too much threshing in the sun or whatever. So Gideon and the Lord said, I'll wait until you return. Gideon went in. Now we just think he went and ran and got something out of his tent and brought it back. No, 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 no. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat. You know how you prepare a young goat? You kill it, you skin it, you cut it open, you fillet it, you chop it up, you cook it. That's a long process. That's, preparing a young goat is not like fixing a ham sandwich. Like That's a long process. So he said he prepared a young goat. From an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast. An ephah of flour. How much is an ephah of flour? An ephah is 22 liters. So take 20 Coke 2-liter bottles, fill them with flour. That's how much flour he prepared. Flour is not in abundance at this point in Israel's history. So there is an act of faith that Gideon is doing here. If this really is the Lord, he's going to treat him like the Lord. That's pretty commendable. This is a feast, a kingly feast, just for one dude out under a tree. So already you know that Gideon senses that this is more than just a normal encounter. He's, he is encountering God, but he's going to make sure. So an ephah of flour, so that's a ton of bread. And uh, putting them in a basket, and it's broth in a pot, what he cooked the meat in. He brought them out, and he offered them to him under the oak. So this, this well have taken a day to do that. I mean, the, a whole day easily could have taken that, maybe longer. He put him, uh, brought him to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, pour out the broth. Gideon did so. That's a lot. That's a lot of food. Put it all on this rock. Gideon did so. Uh, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, flashback to Moses, with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consumed the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Oh, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He realizes now who he's talking to. He now fully knows he's been talking to God face to face. And so the Lord said to him, Shalom, is what it says literally, peace, Shalom. Do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Orpah, of the Abiezrites. So he made an altar. This is God appearing just like he had done to Jacob at Bethel, just like he had done to Moses at Sinai, just like he had done 
uh, to Joshua before the battle, this angel of the Lord appearing, giving a sign, giving reassurance, doing something supernatural, and then disappearing. And then Gideon realizes exactly who he's talking to. So, Gideon built the altar, called it the Lord is peace, etc. Verse 25. So Gideon's been told, go and deliver. Go and redeem, save Israel from the Midianites. However, before he can do that, he's got to clean up his own house. The same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd. So this specific bull, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. What? Now we start to see Gideon's family were pagan. He was wondering, what has this happened to us? Well, you've got an altar of Baal and an Asherah pole that your father is the overseer of. This is the canonization of Israel. So if Gideon is going to deliver God's people, he can't do that from an idle household. He's got to do something first. Clean up your own mess before you try to clean up everybody else's. So, tear down your fathers, we'll cut it beside it. Verse 26, then build the proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height, or this raised place, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down and offer the second bull as an offering. So in other words, you're not only going to tear down Baal and Asherah, which represented the pagan Canaanite fertility sex cult, you are going to reinstall me right on top of them. We are going to re-sanctify this place. So Gideon took ten of his servants and he did as the Lord told him. Sounds brave. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. So the mighty warrior, you're starting to see, Gideon is kind of that wants to be a mighty warrior, but at the end of the day is still fearful and hesitant. So he does it, does it at night. So Gideon gets like a B plus on this one. Right? He's not straight A's, but he does it, but you're, you know. Um, he did as the Lord commanded. In the morning when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Why were they so scared? What did Baal and Asherah guarantee? What kind of gods were they? What did you worship them in order to get? Crops, fertility. What was Israel's problem right now? Midianites raiding and taking all of their crops. So they needed the land to be fertile. So this act by Gideon was actually an act of treason against the people and could make them starve in their pagan mindset. It's a very serious offense. It's not just like, oh, I had a statue in my yard and my neighbor tore it down. No, this is like, this is destroying the community from their pagan mindset. And that's exactly right. God is wanting that to be the case. Yes, because that entire basis of thinking is false. And it should never have taken root here in the first place. So they demanded that. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd, Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Yerubal, or Jerubal. And that means uh, literally he contends or he strives against Baal. 
or he strives for Baal. It could have been a mocking name. But anyway, he, he, that's his name. And they said, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. So his dad, Gideon's dad, the one who put this thing up, actually is the one who saves Gideon. And he saves him by realizing something that God has wanted Israel to realize forever. Real gods can defend themselves. Real gods can defend themselves. They don't need people to fight their battles in the end or take vengeance when they're desecrated. They can fight their own battles. So if you Gideon's knocked down the altar and cut it down, and Gideon's name, by the way, means hacker, like one who hacks something down, and that's exactly what he does. He hacked down this uh, Baal and Asherah pole. So if, if he does this, and the dad's logic is, if, if Baal's really upset, let Baal take care of it. And there's almost a sense, possibly, that his dad is like, hey, after seven years, and we're like this, Baal hadn't done us much favor either. So you almost get the sense that his dad might be kind of through with the whole Baal thing, or at least realizing, and then seeing Gideon, his very unwarrior-like son, do an uh, uncharacteristically warrior-like thing by basically putting his life on the line against his own family and all of the people. So it's, it's this it's interesting promise to how Gideon's life is going to start. And then we'll finish up this section, and, and I may touch on it next time. But just to finish it out, he says, now, so after this, now, all the Midianites and Malachites and all the other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So now the raiders are coming back. The Spirit of the Lord, and NIV says came upon, but that's not a good translation. It literally says the Spirit of the Lord clothed with Gideon, or clothed itself with Gideon. In Hebrew, it's clothed herself, because spirit's a feminine word. But it's, it's God put on Gideon. That's the image, is putting on a coat, putting on a robe. The Holy Spirit put on Gideon. In other words, empowered Gideon. So now Gideon is acting as an agent of the Holy Spirit in this section. The Holy Spirit clothed himself with Gideon, and he blew the shofar, trumpet, ram's horn, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. That's the people in his area. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, his tribe, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, the surrounding tribes. So they too went up to meet them. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's only dew on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. So Gideon is putting out a fleece. That's where this term comes from, literally. Here's the thing. We always think of this as, I've got to put out a fleece to determine God's will. Gideon didn't need to determine God's will. Gideon already knew God's will. And he says it twice. He's saying, if you're really going to do this, as you said, as you promised. There was no discernment of God's will here. Gideon was just scared. And he wanted reassurance because he was about to go into battle completely unprepared. And so, he, he's, so we look at this and go, oh, this is a lesson for how we can discern God's will. No, it's not. It's not at all a lesson for how to discern God's will. God's will was already made and already clear. So there's no biblical warrant for us putting out a fleece uh, as a thing we should do. This is not something that Gideon has done that's like, hey, do this now. God concedes to answering Gideon. It says the Lord, and that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung, it out, wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. So God conceded and actually gave in to Gideon's request because what he was about to do was so monumental and so terrifying. 
But Gideon still wasn't convinced because guess what? It's possible in a desert region in the morning for a ground to be dry, but a big fleecy, woolly pelt to be wet. That's possible because it'll hold dew and the ground will evaporate quick. So that's not a super miracle. Not really. It could be. Maybe. It's unusual. It's not a miracle. So now look what Gideon does. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That would be a miracle. That does not happen. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. So what we see in Gideon, he's not this mighty man of God yet. He's not this faithful warrior champion yet. There's a desire. He has one foot in his covenant relationship with God, but there's also a lot of hesitancy because he's been raised in a pagan family, in a land that's oppressed. He doesn't have this intimate relationship with God yet. And so that's part of Gideon. So we have to be careful not to fabulize these things or turn them into kid superhero stories, is recognize the reality. But the cool thing is God is condescending majorly to answer Gideon's requests and to do these things. So it lets you know how intent God is on saving his people, even when they don't deserve it. And so he does, he condescends to Gideon's requests. Next week, we're going to uh, continue with Gideon's story. This is the longest uh, judge story in the Bible. Uh, I think Samson clocks in a little bit under this one. But um, the Gideon cycle. So we're going to continue in this for the next two weeks. And we're going to see there's a lot more to this guy than we've always thought. But we got to go. We're two minutes over. So have a great week, everybody.